After decades of adopting a tough-on-crime mentality, Missouri's politicians are embracing an overhaul of the criminal justice system. State Representative Shemed Dogan of Baldwin is leading a committee looking further into the issue, and the Republican joins us next on Politically Speaking to talk about why it's a good idea to be smart on crime. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, and our very special guest, State Representative Shamed Dogan. Okay, Representative Dogan, before we get into issues, can you tell us where your district is? Sure. I represent the 98th District, which is parts of West St. Louis County. So I have Baldwin, Ellisville, Wildwood, and Fenton. Great. And how long have you been in office? I was elected in 2014. Well, I think we're going to start off by talking about some criminal justice issues because we know you're very involved with that topic. Uh, Can you give us an idea of what um, type of work you've been doing in Jefferson City on these issues and where you think the state needs to go next? Sure. I chair the Special Committee on Criminal Justice in the House, uh, which was created for the first time this year. Um, And so it's been a unique opportunity to try to pass some really meaningful legislation. And we were able to get across the finish line a couple of really substantial reforms that were contained in House Bill 192. And so that underlying bill was sponsored by Representative Bruce DeGroote, um, also from St. Louis County here. And it had to do with um, the uh, board bills um, or what are essentially debtor's prisons uh, that were highlighted by Tony Messenger in his columns for the Post-Dispatch. And one of the most egregious things that he pointed out was that a woman was uh, fined again and again and again for stealing I think it was an $8 thing of mascara, and it ended up in tens of thousands of dollars uh, in fines for her in jail time. Um, and so what this does is it reduces the ability of people to be incarcerated simply because they owe money um, on offenses like this, which are nonviolent and aren't a big threat to public safety. And then the other reform that was contained in HB 192 was a change in mandatory minimum sentences sponsored by Representative Cody Smith, who's also our awesome budget chair. Um, And the really exciting thing about that is that the changes in the sentencing there were made retroactive. So there are, you know, starting later this year, going to be people who are eligible for parole um, for a lot of nonviolent offenses who, um, you know, we, the legislature, determined have been serving excessive sentences for those offenses um, because our society's really taken a look at, you know, how long we lock people up and what for and decided that people in these circumstances, if they've had good behavior while incarcerated, um, they deserve second chances. And this bill is really going to give them a great opportunity to do that. From reading the bill, it's not every offense that has a mandatory minimum. It's certain offenses, and there has to be certain 
check marks checked, basically. Is that was I reading that correctly, or was I mistaken on that? That's right. And what we did, um, what I should say, is Senator Carla May, um, as well as Senator Ed Emery, were the main ones who kind of went through and did the deep dive on which offenses were going to be included and not. Um, so they included a host of offenses that are not eligible, which are most of the things that you would think of as quote unquote violent crimes. Um, and that's kind of where the legislature decided to draw the line because uh, we're still not to a point where we wanted to explore which of the violent crimes we wanted to make people eligible for, which I think is a conversation that we do need to have um, down the road and that is happening nationally. Um, because if you're going to say that people deserve second chances um, and that they can be rehabilitated, you know, 98 percent of the people who go into prisons in Missouri end up coming out at some point regardless of whether they're violent or nonviolent criminals. Um, and so I think we need to be focusing our mindset not just on you know punishing people for the sake of punishment, uh, but rehabilitating them, whatever their crimes are, and making sure that when they do come out that they can be productive members of society and making sure that they've changed their mindset so they don't repeat um, the mistakes that got them in, incarcerated in the first place. Can you explain why you're interested in issues surrounding criminal justice, why you've taken this up? as a legislator? Yeah, well, there's a number of reasons. Um, but really, when I came into the legislature, I wasn't expecting to take up these issues. But um, I ended up getting involved in a campaign to um, release a man named Jeff Mazansky, who was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for three marijuana offenses. Um, and he had served already 20 plus years. So that must have been a mandatory minimum, I'm assuming. It, or if, it was a three uh, strikes deal. We passed probably the most restrictive three strikes law in the country at the time um, because he had one uh, possession offense for marijuana possession, two sales, which were not huge sales. He wasn't some big, quote unquote, drug kingpin. There was no guns, no violence involved. And yet he received a life without the possibility of parole sentence. So myself and a whole bunch of legislators signed a petition to Governor Nixon at the time. Uh, two thirds of the legislature did that. And Governor Nixon, to his credit, uh, granted Jeff parole um, or eligibility for parole, um, I should say. And the parole board looked at his record, which was spotless, and decided to let him go. So listeners should... I, I probably know this because this is pretty well known at this point, but three strikes rules are when people commit or are convicted of three crimes. Sometimes they are what the public might consider fairly minor offenses, possession or sale of drugs, nonviolent offenses, and then they automatically get a life sentence or some very long sentence. And they've been the target of a lot of criticism recently, including by President Donald Trump, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't be governing by sports analogies. You know, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, three strikes and you're out. You know, what about four balls and you can take a walk? I mean, yeah, it just gets kind of absurd that we were doing this serious uh, policy making by sports. When a lot of these policies were implemented, admittingly, I was like 10 years old, so I can't say that I was following them closely. But it seemed like there was bipartisan consensus back, let's say, in the 80s or 90s of a very hard edge, throw everybody in prison, criminal justice mentality. And it seems like that's changed pretty dramatically, probably since Ferguson, but maybe even before then. Do you have any theories on why there's been a lot of bipartisan action in this arena? 
I think there's a couple different things going on with this on the conservative side of the ledger because that's where most of the changes come. Um, one is that you've had a bunch of really great organizations um, starting with uh, this group down in Texas called the Texas Public Policy Foundation um, and their associated group Right on Crime. Um, and their approach is to look at crime as being uh, in the name right on crime instead of being just tough on crime. And the policies that they enacted down in Texas um, starting in the early 2000s uh, helped to reduce their prison population to the point where they were actually closing prisons instead of opening new ones, which when you think about Texas, uh, you know, the way that George W. Bush ran for president and people in Texas traditionally ran for governors, they were very tough on crime, lock them up, throw away the key, you know, that kind of Texas swagger thing. Um, And the fact that they looked at data uh, showing that, you know, this isn't actually effective at reducing crime or in changing people's behavior. And by the way, it costs a boatload of taxpayer dollars. Um, so I think uh, those two things, the fact that, um, you know, you've seen other states do this successfully and reduce their crime at the same time they're reducing their prison population, um, and the fact that, you know, our state has a, you know, pretty limited budget. We have, you know, mandated balanced budgets here in Missouri and in most states, uh, conservative states especially, and we don't want to continue spending taxpayer dollars on what at the end of the day is a failed government program. I worked in Louisiana, uh, which was the, had the highest incarceration rate in the country until last year. It was just overtaken by Oklahoma. And I would say I heard a lot of conservatives say that they just didn't want to be spending money on this issue anymore. I mean, when you're deciding between education and health care, and then they're saying, well, the prison population's up 5,000 people, so we need to spend a lot more money there. I I think people started feeling like those were not the decisions they wanted, wanted to make. But I'm also curious whether you think this is become a bigger deal because of some, frankly, high-profile Republican uh, activists. The Koch brothers, for example, are really uh, hot on this issue. More recently, Jared Kushner. Do you think that's a factor in Missouri? Um, Not necessarily in our state, but nationally that uh, has played a role in it. Um, Because like a lot of problems, uh, people don't realize that it's a problem until it affects someone close to them, a family member or someone they love. And so it's kind of interesting to see a lot of the people who've been leaders in this movement, um, like Chuck Colson, who was one of the Watergate criminals, um, ended up founding Prison Fellowship, which is an organization that's been influential in criminal justice reform for decades and was instrumental in helping pass the First Step Act. Um, You look at Jared Kushner, whose father was incarcerated, um, you know, and you hate that it has to come to that, that people have to have relatives of theirs or someone they know who gets incarcerated for them to care. But... For me, I, I don't care how you come to the you know, conclusion as long as you reach the right conclusion um, and something that's going to make sense policy-wise and public safety-wise. It's, it's a good place for us to be. And we'll be back after this message. And we're back. I was curious whether you think the opioid crisis is playing any role in how people view criminal justice issues now. I think that that has had an effect in the sense that we've viewed drug, our drug problems as an addiction problem rather than as a criminality problem. 
Um, and some of that undoubtedly has to do with race as well, because the opioid addiction crisis affects white people <laughs> um, disproportionately. Um, whereas I think when you have the crack epidemic in the 80s, which affected African-Americans disproportionately, um, which Incidentally, um, it wasn't that African-Americans used crack cocaine necessarily that much more than white folks, but they were the ones who got affected by three strikes laws and all these other things. Uh, But all that aside, I think it's a good thing that we now realize that people who are on drugs are that way because it's an addiction, just like alcoholism, just like other health problems. Um, And we're addressing it as a health crisis rather than as an incarceration crisis where we feel like we have to lock up people for being addicted. This actually came up when we were interviewing Senator Scott Sifton. He had proposed legislation of increasing sentences for people that sell heroin. And before I make this point, I don't think that people that sell heroin should not go to jail. I think that they're doing a bad thing. But it struck me that there's a movement to basically decriminalize heroin users who, as you mentioned, are largely suburban white people and then throw the book at dealers who very well may be more often than not African-American and give them stiffer sentences when the reason there are heroin dealers is because there is a demand from heroin users. So I know this is a complicated argument to make, but does that strike you as a bit disjointed line of thinking? It is. Um, and Senator Sifton's legislation is something I've had to fight the last couple of years uh, because he uh, really wanted to, like you said, throw the book at people who were dealing like really tiny amounts of heroin also. Um, and I think that's something for us to be careful with with this fentanyl crisis. Um, unlike marijuana, fentanyl is fatal. Um, people can overdose from it pretty easily. Um, but also, unlike marijuana, fentanyl is legal. You know, it's a product that is very useful for pain management, just like all these other opioids are. And, you know, I think it's interesting the fact that you have this line between where the legal markets are and where the black market is. Um, the, the fact that something that is legal for a doctor to prescribe and for, you know, for use in a hospital, you if you get it on the street and you infect which I think might be happening to some extent with some of this vaping, where we're getting these unknown products mixed into the nicotine that comes into these vape products. Um, It can kill people. Um, And so I think any product that has the potential to kill people um, like that, you do need to take a look at regulating it. But again, you have to do that in a smart way um, and not in a simplistic way. So I wanted to circle back to the issue of debtors' prisons. Can you explain what was happening and why this legislation was needed. I know you referenced the woman with the $8 mascara, but can you um, go into a little bit more what the issue is around debtors, so-called debtors prisons? Yeah, well, what we do um, in the state of Missouri is we fine people for the cost of incarcerating them. Um, And so you rack up what they call board bills um, after you are released from a jail stay. They'll say you were here for 30 days and it cost you X amount of dollars. And we were stacking um, these board fees on top of the fines that people owed for whatever offenses that they committed. Um, And we were re-incarcerating people when they were unable to pay their board bills. So it's not like they committed some new offense. It was just the fact that they were unable to pay the bills for the incarceration that they had originally been sentenced to. So you were stacking bills 
you know, for inability to pay on top of other bills for inability to pay. And my understanding from reading Tony Messenger's article, this was a especially big problem in rural Missouri, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And uh, that's why this got a lot of attention, because, you know, typically we have this rural urban divide in Missouri. And this was an issue that was common across both rural and urban areas. And, you know, it's uh, becoming a bigger issue now also because the Supreme Court even ruled that we are going to change the way that we handle bail um, and that they will not no longer tolerate people being um, offered excessive bail um, and changing the rules around that. And so I anticipate there's going to be a lot of discussion about that next year. I've already seen some of my colleagues attacking the Supreme Court's rulings, which is unfortunate because um, they've been exploiting this case in Kansas City where this guy um, murdered uh, those folks in Kansas. Um, and he, it turned out he had been granted bail for a couple crimes in Missouri. But guess what? Those crimes that he was committing were one, violent crimes. And two, the um, Supreme Court rules explicitly allow for a judge to consider whether someone is a flight risk. And this person had, you know, fleed police and had resisted arrest of police a couple different times. So someone like that, that was just a mistake by a judge that had nothing to do with the Supreme Court rules on bail reform, which typically um, deal with people who are, you know, given bail for these nonviolent crimes. So is the issue that if you are a working class person or a poor person, you're having a harder time covering these initial fees and they pile up on you as opposed to, you know, a wealthy person who might be able to pay a fine that's a few hundred dollars and go about their way. Exactly. And it's also looking at the system of how much we find people bail in the first place and why those amounts are set at the rates that they are. Um, you know, you typically set a high bail in a case where you either think that this is a crime that is, you know, of such serious consequence that you don't want the person to get out. Um, or if someone's committed crimes over and over and over again, um, then you want to set it high so that they won't um, flee. Um, but a lot of these cases we're seeing, um, I think counties and municipalities set these fees so high so that they can frankly just make money off of them. So that's that's a bad incentive structure to set your bail system so that counties or private companies in some cases can make money off of our system of bail. Shifting to a little bit local direction, the two prosecutors in St. Louis and St. Louis County, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell and St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, came to office promising to overhaul the criminal justice system and are trying to do things differently from their predecessors. I'm sure you've been watching what they've been doing and you maybe have watched what's happened to your former colleague, Kim Gardner, on other matters, namely how she handled the Eric Greiden situation. How successful do you think they, they, they've been in moving the needle on this issue? Um, I think they've been pretty successful at a lot of uh, the reforms that they promised. Um, and this is a really unique circumstance because it's not like the voters of St. Louis City or St. Louis County were surprised by any of the reforms that they've done. Um, you know, Wesley Bell especially campaigned on, you know, I'm going to be 180 degrees different from Bob McCullough's approach um, to a lot of criminal justice related issues. Um, you know, and even though it's not a, an issue I talk about a lot, but the death penalty, the fact that he've, he's kind of put that off the table, um, but also things like bail reform, um, things like, you know, looking at our marijuana um, sentences and saying that we're not going to arrest people caught with I think it's under 100 grams in both the city and the county now. 
Um, and I think those are things that have been pretty transformative. Um, and it's it's unfortunate there's so, that there's so much resistance to, I think, the personalities of a Wesley Bell and a Kim Gardner rather than arguing over the policies. Yeah, I was just about to say, I've noticed there's been a pretty concerted effort, especially around Gardner, of people that are associated with the same political faction that Leiter Cruz and Steve Stanger were in to basically blame the uptick in crime on the prosecutors and not necessarily the people that are responsible for handling the police department. I'm not saying that Krusen and Stanger are wholly responsible for crime. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But I'm sure you've noticed that. And I think that they're trying to argue that they're being too lenient with potential criminals. And this is why St. Louis City in particular is having these issues. How would you respond Mm -hmm. to that? Yeah. And I think there's a little bit more of an argument to be made uh, for that with uh, Kim Gardner, because I think there are some legitimate concerns about, you know, particular cases where um, people have not been prosecuted um, for certain offenses. Um, You know, I I am concerned about some of those types of things and some of her policies a lot more than I am about Wesley's policies. Um, But again, I think that some of the opposition to both of them is basically coming from, you know, either factions in the Democratic Party that don't like them or people in the Republican Party who just want to castigate any criminal justice reform as being bad. Um, And I just reject that mentality because I do think that they've brought forward a conversation about criminal justice reform. Um, and the fact that they're both the first African-American, you know, people elected to those positions um, and they are the only ones throughout the state. Um, and I think when you, you, know, you can't help but notice the racialized, um, the disproportions of people in our prison population who happen to be African-American throughout our state. Um, and so if anything else, the fact that they're able to call attention to some of those disparities, not that they're you know, going out there and favoring black defendants or something over other people, but just the fact that they are mindful of those disparities and mindful of the underlying causes of crime, um, because I don't think you can ignore the fact that poverty drives a lot of um, the behaviors that we see, you know, whether it's um, you know, people committing, you know, drug related crimes because there's not that much economic opportunity in their areas. Or you look at the drug addiction issue. Um, a lot of drug addiction is related to kind of economic and other types of despair, you know, and that's something that poor communities all across the state, I think, can recognize. I was at a town hall meeting yesterday with the secretary of state and a handful of legislators in South County. Uh, and there was actually a pretty robust discussion about a bill that was introduced last session that I think there are plans to introduce again uh, that would take away some of the discretion of the prosecutor. Uh, I believe um, this is aimed at Wesley Bell because it came up that they think that he's not going after certain crimes enough. They specifically mentioned prosecuting people for not paying child support. I was wondering if you were familiar with the bill and you can maybe explain why this has been introduced. I was a little bit. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not qualified to speak to the motivations of people who introduce bills like that. But I do get a little concerned when you have people um, not just saying that we're going to take a second guess at what a prosecutor's decisions are, but basically trying to kick those prosecutions up to the attorney general's level. Um, as a matter of course, I, d- I don't think it's very wise to take um, prosecutors' authority out of their hands, elected prosecutors, and give it to the attorney general. The attorney general already has enough on their plate. 
Right. I'm sorry. I had forgotten to explain this part of the bill. I think it was that if the prosecutor was declining to prosecute something, that you could take it to the attorney general. Right. I, I have to say, personally, I was a little confused about why we think the attorney general's office should handle the prosecution of not paying child support, but uh, fair enough. So if you could, like, wave a magic wand, no politics are involved, what do you think Missouri should be doing differently as it relates to criminal justice? Because some of those issues are really politically untenable sometimes. (laughs) Uh, What would you want to see the state doing differently? I I think when when I look at holistically, um, I think that we ought to change policing in the state such that um, police are focused on the most dangerous crimes and that they're focused on catching um, the most serious criminals because right now that's not what's happening. Um, if you look at our arrests in the state of Missouri, 10% of the arrests throughout the state are for marijuana possession only. Um, and so what you're seeing is you're seeing police go after things that are pretty easy to catch but aren't really that consequential. Whereas if you commit a murder, Um, In the city of St. Louis, this has been true for a while, you're less than 50% likely to get arrested, much less to be convicted. Um, And for uh, rapes and for burglaries and for robberies, those rates are even lower. Um, So you're more likely to get away with a lot of these serious crimes than you are to be arrested for them. Um, And if we can get those arrest rates up for those serious crimes, I think that has a lot more deterrent effect than increasing sentences or than, you know, pretty much anything else you can do. If people are more certain that if they report a robbery that the robber will be caught, that will go a long way towards increasing public safety. So that's that's the number one thing I would have us focus on. Let's shift a little bit to the political realm. 2020 is actually, it's only like two months away, isn't it? Less than two months away. Man, time has time passed flies. very quickly. I'm just going to ask first, are Less you... Less than three months. Oh, my gosh. Are you planning on running for a final term in the Missouri House next year? Um, I've filed my paperwork, um, so we will see how that goes. I don't currently have any opponents right now, kind of knocking on wood, um, but that's the, the current plan. The reason I ask that is uh, because of... Uh, criminal events. There is a county executive's race next year. I know you had thought about running for that in 2018. Is that off your radar at this point, or is that a possible possibility? It's not very likely at all, um, because I took a look at that race and the partisan dynamics of St. Louis County at the time and uh, figured that it would be tough to beat the crook, even though everyone knew he was a crook. He hadn't been convicted of anything at the time. And um, Sam Page, um, no matter what problems I might have with him. I think um, he's not a crook. So defeating a Democrat in this county is an uphill battle. Well, uh, that's assuming Sam Page is the nominee. You know, that's true. A former member of the Missouri House, who's the current assessor, Jake Zimmerman, may run against him. But well, he has to answer about like why people's assessments went up. So I'm not saying that he's a perfect candidate, but he does have over $500,000 on hand. Just want yeah. to mention that. It's, it's going to be a lot more of a generic Democrat versus generic Republican type of race rather than do you really want to vote for the crook? So, Boy, that was only a year ago. But I want to talk about a race that's happening sooner than 2020. There's a special election going on in the 99th House District between Democrat Trish Gunby and Republican Leanne Pittman. It's Gene Evans's old seat. And that was actually a district that was pretty close in, in 2018, I think that Gene Evans only won by like five or six percentage points, if I'm not mistaken. And even she had said in the past, like, it's not 
It's not a Democratic district, but it's not an overwhelmingly Republican one. I'm just west of Deb Lavender's district, which is definitely a Democratic district. And I have a, a large uh, municipality. Or not, it's not that big, but I have Valley Park, mm. which has a fair amount of union and trades people and is pretty economically diverse. I think my district's fairly diverse, but it's also probably, you know, per capita income or if you looked at, like, the cost of housing, more on the low end for West County. I mean, it's not on the low end for St. Louis County, but it's not it's not a wealthy Republican district, as some people assume. And I think that out of all the special elections, because all the other special elections are either super Democratic or super Republican districts, this one's getting the most attention. What do you think it means for Republicans to keep this seat? And what do you think it would mean for Republicans if they lost this seat? I think it's uh, one of these cases where you can read a little too much into special elections sometime um, because this isn't a race that's nationalized. It's very local. Um, The Republican candidate, Leanne Pittman, is someone who's uh, pretty well known in her community. Um, She's a very likable candidate. Um, and she's been working hard. I was out with her um, a couple weeks ago at a parade and, you know, happy to report that she had a lot more volunteers out there walking in her parade than the Democratic candidate had. Um, But, you know, sometimes these things um, can go a different direction and it's not necessarily an indictment on anything that the candidate or um, her supporters were doing. It's just that, you know, the district is a purple one. And it really could go either way. I know the district voted for Gene Evans, but at the same time, they voted for Claire McCaskill in the Senate race. So I think voters there are really focused on things that a lot of suburban voters are, which is, you know, how is this candidate going to help my pocketbook? How is this person's outlook on the world? Um, And I think at the end of the day, it's a more conservative district than it is a left-leaning district. So I think uh, I'd give the Republicans a slight advantage uh, based on that. Do you think that the legislation that was fiercely debated at the end of the session involving abortion is going to have any effect on this race. You were, you were I think, one, one of two Republicans to vote against that bill. It was just me. It was just you. <laughs> For some reason, I thought Mike Moon voted against it, but I might have just missaw that. No, I, that no. would That would have been very surprising, given that he's like the most anti-abortion rights legislator in, in the world. But do you think that'll have any effect? Because I actually asked Chris Gunby about that, and she said, She's seen less and less people talk about that over time just because mm-hmm. it's been out of the news cycle. It's been out of the news cycle, and it's also different when you don't have a candidate who cast a vote in that situation. You know, there's no incumbent in the race, so it's kind of hard to say, well, you might have done this if you were there at the time, you know? So I wanted to ask you, you're a person of color and a Republican, and currently, uh, you know, President Trump has been accused of being racist. I'm wondering... Is that a harder position to be in these days than it was pre-2016? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, debate that goes on because I'm in a bunch of, you know, African-American, Republican and conservative circles, uh, whether on Twitter, kind of publicly or privately. There's some discussion groups I'm part of. And, you know, the the effect that President Trump has had on our party and on our country is something that's been concerning to me since he announced his candidacy. Um, And it's not something that I've shot out about uh, speaking out against, uh, because I do think that he's taking us to a dangerous place in race relations. Um, And I just wish, you know, that he would stop a lot of the provocations uh, that, you know, he tends to spew forth all the time. Um, But that being said, I think uh, we're going to have a lot of healing to deal with um, after this presidency is over. And 
Um, I just hope that people will get to be more civil towards each other um, in general, because, you know, President Trump aside, I think our political culture has just gotten a lot too depersonalized because a lot of it happens online rather than in real life. And the kind of things that people say online are just ridiculous. And, you know, people say and do stuff online that they would never do in real life. And the fact that we've moved so much of our discourse to that format as opposed to arguing and talking to each other and, you know, having to deal with our neighbors face to face or our political opponents face to face. I don't think that's healthy for our society in the long run. Thank you so much for coming in. You can read our stories at stlpublicradio.org. I'm Julie O'Donohue. You can find me on Twitter at JS O'Donohue. Where can we find you, Jason? Jay Rosenbaum. And? At Dogen4Rep. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.